stated in the title, and I'm going to try to do better to say this, um, but here's, here's the fake news. Good people must reject people who behave badly. Now, that's a way to state this idea that's out there. Um, uh, and I'm thinking primarily this is an idea that is held among, you know, Christians, among church folk or a certain ilk of church folk. But it's not just that. I mean, cancel culture is real, right? There is this notion out there in the society, more broadly speaking, um, that when someone behaves badly or thinks badly or uh, thinks or behaves in a way that, that I just disapprove of, um, because I'm a good person or as an, enact, as an enactment of my goodness, and again, in the religious terminology, as an enactment of my holiness, I am going to reject that person, right? So that's the, that's the idea. Okay, it's out there. It's fake news. Don't you believe it, right? So this morning, we're going to try to unpack that, disarm that fake news, and then mostly uh, spend our time mm, recapturing uh, the news you can trust, which is uh, to the contrary to the common fake news. I want to start with a story to kind of give um, a little context for this, at least for me personally. This is many years ago when I was serving as a teen pastor in a great church in uh, South Texas. I got a call uh, from a single mom in our church. Uh, I knew her at the time, but I didn't know her well uh, um, at the time. But uh, she said she wanted to meet with me, and she wanted to introduce me to her daughter, who I hadn't met yet, wasn't a part of our youth group. Um, and so we scheduled a meeting, and the two of them came to my office, and she introduced me to her daughter. Her name is Erin. She was 17, Erin was at the time. Um, and so uh, her mom explained to me that Erin had been living in another state with her father uh, for the last, most recent few years. And Erin had recently returned home to live with her uh, mother there in the, in the town where, where we were. So she said, I want to introduce you to Erin so you know who she is. She's my daughter. Uh, it's great. We exchanged pleasantries, and she's a you know, sweet kid. So then her mom picks up the conversation again. She says, but there's actually another reason that I wanted to come and talk to you. She said, I wanted to come and talk to you about why it is that Aaron um, has moved back here to live with me. She said, we've recently gotten some news that has rocked us pretty hard uh, and has changed at least our plans for life uh, considerably. Uh, and she said, I'm sure that this is going to change things for a lot of us, uh, at least in the near term. And I said, okay, so, well, you know, what's up? And she said, well, um, Aaron is pregnant. And in that moment, I can only imagine what this mother was feeling on the inside. Um, everything from my daughter knows better than this. I raised her better than this to I'm embarrassed as a mom to, you know, what will the church think? What will church people think? Um, Maybe even, how could she have done this to me? You know, those were the kinds of things that were firing off in my head. And as she, Aaron's mom, continued to speak, she became emotional and actually halted her words, at least for a while. And I didn't know which direction she was going. I was not prepared for what happens next, you know, in this conversation. 
But when I started to realize what she wanted to say to me and what she was saying, I, well, I'll just say I was stunned by what I heard next. And I'm going to continue that story after we do some study together. How about that? Okay, so um, let me just say, if it hasn't happened to you already, it will. If it's not happening to you right now, <laughs> that is to say, um, it's going to happen. Eventually, at some point, right now or in the future, someone you know and love is going to disappoint you in some way. They're going to make a bad decision, or at least a decision that you are convinced is a bad decision. Um, you know, and we're talking about everything from dropping out of college to getting a tattoo to taking on too much consumer debt from those kinds of things or all the way to another level. Uh, in this case, the, the reference that I just gave you, sexual promiscuity, um, unwed pregnancy, perhaps experimenting with drugs. So I'm trying to keep that broad of a you know, span in mind. Your spouse is going to let you down in some way. And in that moment, in those moments, let's just not pretend it's a singular thing. This is something that happens. Um, you, we, we're going to have a choice. If I could try to state it like in its essence, we're going to have a choice to make in that moment. And on the one side of that choice is, you know, do I want to, do I want to make my point here? Do I want to build my case? Do I want to prove this person wrong? Do I want to prove, um, you know, that they're wrong and that I'm right? Um, do I want to take that path? We know how those conversations go. Sometimes those words come out like razors cutting, cutting the person to a thousand little pieces. And sometimes those interactions become like relational knives actually severing relationships entirely cutting people out of our lives. Um, in essence, you're going to be faced with this choice and the way that you choose to respond, the way that we choose to respond in that moment has, and this is the part that I, if I could say from the beginning, the end of what I'd like to counsel today is that the way that we choose to respond in that moment in big ways and in small ways has everything to do with the future of that relationship. Um, and that is to say that how we choose to respond in these moments, when I say it'll shape the future of that relationship, that's another way of saying that is that that interaction will shape both of us as individuals um, going forward. So we're going to get to choose, I would call it, a life practice. We're going to get to choose what kind of life practice we're going to operate by. Kind of like, think of it maybe like, like what's my, <laughs> what's my, what's my style? What's my mode? What's my code? What's my policy? What's my life rule, right? Like what's my, how do I do? Um, you can choose to operate according to a life practice like this. If, if I don't like the choice, then I don't like the person. If I can't lock out the pain, then I will lock out the person. When people disappoint me, I will either cut them out of my life or at least cut them up with my 
learn. When you make a mistake, my job is to make my point. Whenever you fall short, you're going to hear a sermon. <laughs> Not a good one, but a sermon. Again, like I said before, like the, the you know, and again, you know, 95% of my orientation as I talk through this this morning is is within kind of our like how we're hashing out faith, you know, how we're figuring out faith. But there is a version of this that's in culture at large. Um, and it's basically if, if you say or do something that I don't approve of, I cancel you. Right? We're talking now, it's like a whole thing. There's cancel culture, right? People people canceling one another over disagree. That's like a that's like a non religious version of the very same thing that we're that we're talking about, which has been going on among folks of faith for a long time. So the basic choice, then, you could say it like this. Do I make my point, or do I take this as an opportunity to build a bridge? So you can argue your case, you can stand your ground, you can convince them or attempt to convince them that they're wrong and you're right. Tell them how disappointed in them that you are, how they should have known better how you raised them better than that, all that stuff. Or you can focus on the preservation of relationship. How do we do that? By the sacred practice of the durable embrace. That's how we do it. And I know even right now, as you're hearing me kind of lay the groundwork for where we're going in the details for the ne over the next few minutes, I know even getting that far, like in all of our heads, all these exceptions start firing off. Yeah, 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 but, yeah, but, yeah, but. What about this and what about that? And what if I do that and take that tack and then and this happens, all that stuff. Just, I just want to say just hold your, hold your fire <laughs> for a minute and, and just to say, and this is where we're going to try to go, um, and the reason I'm saying what I'm saying today, the example of Jesus is clear. 100% crystal clear. The teaching of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament is 100% clear on this. And based on those two observations, and that's what we're going to be focused on today, um, I want to suggest to you a better way. Um, and I want to acknowledge that what we're talking about today, and for some this may even be like a discovery, um, hopefully what we're ultimately driving at here is the transformational power of God's wisdom in this sacred practice of the durable embrace. I love um, Scott McKnight, his definition of love. Like love is a word that gets thrown around and sometimes it becomes so airy that we may not really grab what we're talking about. And he goes to quite some trouble and he describes love as a rugged commitment to be with, for, and unto. We've talked about that before. That, that the real Jesus-y kind of love, spirit-saturated love, is this rugged commitment. I'm with you. I'm for you. And we're going somewhere together, right? Somewhere, somewhere beautiful um, together. And so... This is my way of saying up front, I realize that what I'm saying, what I'm describing, this is not simple, this is complicated, 
this is not clean. This is more, most often, this is messy. Um, uh, I, I get that. And I realize that what we're going to talk about today isn't going to answer every question. Um, and yet I'm trying to keep my ambition really simple uh, in saying that the fake news is that somehow goodness is embodied through rejection and cutting out. And the reality is, to the contrary, um, what's actually good and righteous and whole and peace and healing is embrace. That's the reality. And if you want the theological way to say it, um, it's this. Holiness in its essence is relational. Holiness is actually rooted in God. And remember from Sunday school, talked about one of those big words, Trinity. Who is God? What is God? God is three and one. God is three and one. God is one and God is three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is eternally in relationship and God is holiness. And so fundamentally, holiness is expressed as relationship, as the interaction of lives. And that's what we see precisely embodied in Christ. So before we go any further than this, though, let's just kind of back up big picture and let's talk about, I'm going to use the word acceptance over and over again, but hopefully from what I've said uh, up till now, you get when I use that word, I'm talking about this bigger idea of the durable, sacred embrace. Um, but let's talk about acceptance and the way it functions in our lives. A couple observations. First of all, we crave acceptance and we seek it out virtually at any cost. Like as a human being, you have a natural hunger, a natural appetite for acceptance. We all naturally gravitate toward acceptance. It's like we have this acceptance metabolizer on the inside and it must be satisfied. We can't live without acceptance. This is why at certain stages of development, teenagers listen to their peers more than their parents because, some, because sometimes relationships with parents become more coachy and more counsely or whatever, and it feels less like acceptance for a young developing teenager. And so drift toward, but this is why we sometimes we drift toward relationships that are hazardous or at least high-risk relationships, right? Because when a once healthy relationship kind of begins to deteriorate and becomes more characterized by criticism and fault finding and those kinds of things in that relationship, well, then my, my acceptance magnet is going to draw me into other relationships, even if they are high risk, potentially hazardous or dangerous relationships. It's not to say that those relationships are right. It's just to say that we crave acceptance and we will seek it until we find it. We are designed this way by God. He created us to crave acceptance. It's what brings us together. It's a natural part of the fact that we are created to be relational. Secondly is this. Acceptance and rejection um, is our most basic developmental factor. As we develop, as developing human beings, you can think of it like this. The acceptance-rejection binary is at root, really, the most basic factor in our development. Now, that's not to say, you know, we're all developed by lots of factors, experiences we've had, people we've known, books we've read, whatever. But nothing has shaped us more profoundly than the acceptance and rejection that we've experienced in our lives. Um, 
the acceptance rejection uh, paradigm that we've experienced in our lives has and is, I would suggest to you, is and has determined the acceptance and rejection that we dish out to others. The way that we have been nurtured in an environment primarily characterized by acceptance versus an environment characterized primarily by rejection. We have been so shaped by that that without conscious arresting of the process, we will express toward others what it is that we have metabolized in our developmental stages. If you developed in an environment where you experience a great deal of rejection in your life, in your personality, unavoidably so, has been shaped by that rejection in some way, most likely the result of having being nurtured in an environment high on rejection, um, most likely would result in causing you, not you, but those other people, to be someone who would quickly reject others for failure to meet expectations and so on. Conversely, if you were nurtured in an environment high on acceptance in great measure, then you're naturally, you're going to be naturally more prone to practice and offer acceptance toward others. So that's the relational side, but also just while we're here in the neighborhood, let's just say that um, the environment in which we were nurtured, high on acceptance, high on rejection, also is a primary factor in the way that we view God. Um, if your background and life development was characterized by embrace and acceptance, then you're going to tend to view God mostly in terms of love and acceptance um, and how great it is to be unconditionally loved by your Heavenly Father, the transformational effects of undeserved grace and mercy. If, on the other hand, your background was characterized by rejection, then you will likely view God in terms of rejection, what I have to do to avoid being rejected by God. Um, the kinds of people who I know to be rejected, rejectable by God. Um, the kinds of behaviors and qualities in people that God rejects. All of this mode of thinking becomes kind of your primary grid for thinking, talking God, you know. And so this acceptance-rejection binary forms not only how we view and function in relationships with others, but also forms forms and informs how we view um, God and relationship with God. The third kind of fact about acceptance is this, and this is clear and obvious, but sometimes until we slow down and just name it, we sometimes we don't um, appreciate it. It's this, acceptance always comes before positive influence, all right? So, you know, just let me ask you a question. Don't, don't answer out loud, but Looking back at the positive, influential relationships in your life, who is it that influenced you more? Those who rejected you or those who accepted you? I mean, when you think of the people who've had a positive influence in your life, are they the people who accepted you, embraced you, most of the time with that kind of no matter what, style of embrace or are they the people who 
critiqued you, who kept score, who stigmatized you, who criticized and rejected you? <laughs> well, it's an easy answer. Obviously, the people we look back in our own life experience, the people who have influenced us positively in our lives are the people who accepted us. And quite often, when we're honest, they accepted us with this, no matter what, I'm going to ignore the facts right now and embrace you anyway kind of acceptance, right? Like, those are the people um, who have influenced us ultimately. And again, not because they agreed with everything we thought, not because they thought we were right about everything we said, believed, did, whatever, not because we measured up to their standards and were therefore allowed in the relationship with them. No, they accepted us just as we were, and as a result, they gained influence in our lives. That's the way it works, right? So, having said all that, here's the news you can trust, right? So we've talked about the fake news. Here's the news you can trust, and there's obviously lots of ways to say this, but here's the way I'm saying it. Um, it's this. Healing and transformation flow through acceptance. Healing and transformation always flow through acceptance, including and perhaps even especially acceptance of those who at least at a certain stage in our lives we find to be unacceptable. You have to qualify all this stuff, right? Okay, so that's what we're going to um, talk about here for the, for the last few minutes. But first, let me just give two general observations before we move any further. I realize that this is a highly charged um, subject. We've all had experience with this binary of acceptance and rejection or embrace versus stig stigmatization, however you want to um, say that. Um, some of you have been on the receiving end of rejection or a lack of acceptance um, or on the receiving end of intolerance, perhaps have been stigmatized, looked down upon, whatever. Um, and in many cases, that intolerance was, in fact, expressed in the name of holiness, sometimes among religious people. And, and for some of you, you have processed successfully through that um, experience, and you have emerged tender and gracious um, and accepting of others. And so you're going to hear this, and you're going to go, yes, yes, yes. You know, I'm so glad somebody's talking about that. Others of you um, have had a similar experience, except for whatever reason, the way that you processed it was different. And, and maybe even as I'm saying it right now, this might be the first time that you've had a chance to think of it like this. Like, um, but if you were in a high rejection environment, when you experience that rejection, here I'm thinking about religious rejection, it could be that your response to that feeling, maybe it was shame, whatever it was, it could be that your response to that was to decide that I'm going to buckle down and never again fail to meet the standards and expectations of the religious people around me. I'm going to overcome this shame and this stigmatization um, by rising up to meet the standards, to meet the expectations. And so if that's the basic way that you've processed this experience, and here again I'm thinking primarily of religious stigmatization, then the basic mindset that emerges from that way of processing is, well, if that's the way I had to get 
the acceptance of good people, then that's the way everybody else around me is going to have to, essentially, if I had to earn the acceptance of the people around me, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see that the people around, the, those who are around me, if, if, if they're going to earn my acceptance, then they're going to have to do it the way that I did it. They're going to have to earn it by meeting my expectations. And so if, if that's kind of your basic structure in your soul, then today you may feel some tension. Um, and I want to say that this would be a healthy tension if you were to feel it. I want to encourage you to courageously embrace that tension and see what your Heavenly Father may be saying to you at this point in your life. So that's the first observation. This is highly charged stuff. I get it. Uh, the second thing is this, 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 and I think I already said it before. I realize that, that this study is going to raise lots of questions, probably raise more questions than, than it answers. I get that. Um, and what I can say is I know that I don't have all the answers to all those questions. I just know that the paradigm that we're laying out today, this is the way of Jesus. And so I'll just simply, once again, I'll, I'll just acknowledge that to practice this level of durable, no matter what, embrace. It is messy. It is unpredictable. It is an adventure. But none of those realities uh, disqualify this life practice. In fact, this is the example of Christ. This practice of scandalous acceptance, um, it doesn't have nice, neat, clean, predictable boundaries to govern who's in my life and who's out. And so, yeah, your life does. It becomes more complicated. It just does. There's no way around that. Um, but it's also true that along the way, this practice enables wondrous, beautiful things to happen. Because what you find is that your relationships actually become tools in the hand of God to mold and shape and transform not only the people toward whom you're practicing acceptance, but also, believe it or not, this practice becomes a tool in the hand of God to shape ourselves, to shape us. So let's look at one passage of Scripture, Romans uh, chapter 15. Well, two, actually, beginning with Ephesians chapter 4. Just kind of two examples of where this idea pops up in both of these, in this case, the writings of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 4, uh, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you've been called by God. Always, he says, be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. And then here's the line. Making allowance for each other's faults. Make allowance for each other's faults. Now, for someone who's been sort of nurtured on the milk of the fake news that we started out with, this is a shock to find this in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Wait a minute, where's Paul getting that? Make allowance for one another's faults? I thought we were supposed to point out one another's faults. I, spoke, I thought we were supposed to cancel one another for one another's faults. No, no, no. No, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the living Spirit of God, instructs the church there and then and here and now. Make allowance for one another's faults. I love it from the King James um, language, forbearing one another, he says. Forbear. That mean, you know what it means to forbear? It means don't be a bear. No, it doesn't. Mean. Well, of course, that's fine. If you interpret it that way, you would probably, you know, you'd be probably on track. But it just means give people space. You know, just hold your fire. 
<laughs> you know, give somebody space. Practice, the way we're saying it today, practice acceptance. All right, so there's, there's it is from Ephesians 4. Uh, another letter to another church written by the very same Apostle Paul. This is from uh, the letter to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 15. Read another section here, and it concludes with very much the same counsel. Romans 15, verse 5. May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, each with the attitude of Christ Jesus toward the other, then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. So, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you. Then God will be glorified. Now, let me just say, um, the Apostle Paul is not writing this from some sanctified vacuum somewhere. This is a guy who knows life in the trenches. When we read his writings, we get a glimpse of the kinds of things that were going on in the churches that were pioneered, planted, and nurtured by the Apostle Paul. And these are some who'd have thought it people with some who'd have thought it habits and patterns in their lives. And so when Paul says accept one another, he's not talking to people who are, you know, just have a few uh, little, little flaws here and there. I mean, he's talking to people who, I mean, he knows what... Um, what a messy life and a messy group of relationships these churches are. He's saying, I know that you have faults. I know you have quirks, hang-ups, oddities, and beyond that, a dark side, you know, that's bleeding all over the place. And he says, make allowance for one another's faults. Accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. And so just a few uh, bullets, these will be on the screen. As we think about what does it mean, how do we go about embracing this kind of practice of the durable embrace, this kind of practice of scandalous acceptance? Just a few thoughts, and then we'll, uh, we'll pray and we'll be done. First of all, it's this. Acceptance doesn't build a case, it builds a bridge. In other words, if you only need to accept people when you have, you only need to accept people when you have an apparent reason to reject them. In other words, the, the starting point here is at the risk of stating the obvious, just to point this out. You don't need acceptance if everyone is behaving in an acceptable manner, right? You only need the practice of acceptance when there is a, that's why I'm talking about a bridge. You only need the practice of acceptance when there is a potential divide. When there is a potential gap, when there is even a potential, let's just say, a potential chasm between, you know, who I perceive myself to be and what I now understand what this person is about or their behavior or their thinking, whatever. When suddenly, when I see and feel and detect that chasm emerge in my mind and my imagination, that's the moment. Acceptance hasn't been relevant until then, right? As long as we were standing on the same ground occupying the same space, the same thinking, the same patterns, the same whatever you want to say, values, whatever, as long as we're occupying the same space, there's no such thing as acceptance. It's just we're just, we're basically sharing the same mind, right? But it's when that chasm emerges that acceptance becomes relevant, part of the conversation, right? So that's why this idea of building a bridge, you don't need to worry about accepting someone until you feel like rejecting them, 
that's the moment when it becomes relevant. So it's like, it's like it's almost like um, like a signal when you feel that welling up on the inside. Okay, I need to make my point. I need to make my case. I need to point out the difference. I need to. I need to. I need to. I need. It's like when you feel that emerge. That's the signal. Oh, this is bridge building time, <laughs> right? Like that's that's the signal. Oh, oh, this this is this is that moment for that spiritual practice of the durable embrace. Oh. Oh, this is what it feels like to become the moment of choice, to become a bridge builder. So like when you feel that impulse, let me point out all the ways in which they're wrong. Let me point out how silly that choice was. Let me point out that I raised them better than that. Let me point out that they've disappointed me. Let me point out that they have let God down, right? Like so all these feelings. Let me pull out my Bible verses to prove how wrong they are. It's like when those, when those feelings, that, that's the signal. That's the moment, right, for building a bridge. That's the moment for pulling out the sacred practice of the durable embrace. Slam on the brakes and build a bridge. Number two, <laughs> acceptance is a constant across all of my circles of relationship. That is to say, people who are close to me get the same embrace and acceptance as the people who are far away. And here we're focused on the word, and it's in both of these. Um, essentially, it's in both of these instructions given by the Apostle Paul, but particularly in Romans 15. Um, accept each other. Who is each other? Well, it's it's each other. It's all the others. That's what that's who's being referred to. In other words, the idea that I'm that I'm suggesting here is what's embedded in this counsel from the Apostle Paul, and indeed the practice um, of the spirit-filled life. You see, like think about okay. So if you think about your relationships as concentric circles, like ripples on a pond, and you've got the relationships that are closest to you, spouse, family. And then the next, you know, the next circle, maybe extended family or friends, close friends. And then the next circle, maybe colleagues at work. And then the next circle, maybe people with whom you share, you know, live in the same community, same city, town, whatever. And then the next, and, and then eventually you get to a circle that's like human beings with whom I share the planet, right? So you think about that. Okay. In general, not always, but in general, uh, the practice of acceptance becomes more difficult as we move in in those concentric circles. It's not what we would want. It's not the ideal. But there tends to be, for those people that are way out there in these far removed concentric circles of our lives, we tend to kind of wax fuzzy and say, well, you know, God loves all people and God loves all humanity. And because God loves all people, um, I do as well, right? But then when it comes to people who are closer to these inside concentric circles, people, people who are closest to us, people may, maybe it's because maybe it's because we know them better, whatever. But it tends to be more common, more frequent, more when we become more prone toward critique, um, analysis, harsh analysis of the people who are closest to us, and even you can think about the same dynamic over the course of time. Right. Like very often when we first get to know someone, a new friend, even if it's a 
a, a close co-worker, and we first get to know him, oh, oh, he is so wonderful. He's always got the right thing to say. He's always in the best mood. He's just always, you know, just so, you know, whatever. And then you're like, you know, this person is so great. And, and then after a few weeks go by, a few months go by, a few years go by, now it's the same person, the same coworker, but it's like, oh, he just gets on my nerve every time he says that thing. He makes these funny noises and just, right? So this thing happens over time. All right. I said all that to say, if it's true, and I maintain that it is, that the closer a person is to us, both in proximity and in time, more time with this person, then the more prone we are toward critique, um, stigmatization, harsh analysis, or in a word, rejection, if that's true, then how do we explain that? How do we explain that it's easier for us to be gracious towards someone who we don't have much time with or someone who's further removed from us in terms of relational circles? If it's true that it's easier for us to show grace toward those people and it's more difficult to show grace toward people, and here's the key word, more difficult for us to show grace toward people who are closer to us. I don't know the answer to that question. But I want to offer an answer, and I didn't make this up, but I want to offer an answer to it. What if it's because for people who are closer to us, their choices, their behaviors, their actions, their words, whether we're right or wrong, we feel like their choices reflect upon us. And so... And so when it becomes more natural for me to critique, condemn, stigmatize, judge harshly people who are closer to me than the people who are further from me, then what's really happening in that dynamic is I'm actually critiquing something that I'm afraid might exist in me. And if that's true, or to the extent that that's true, then this could become an entirely different conversation. What kind of process is it that I need to undergo in order to, and maybe you can say it this way, what kind of process is it that I need to undergo so that I could give myself the grace that God has given me so that I could then extend it to others? See, now we're having a completely different conversation. And so, Accept each other, which others, all others, accept one another. Number three, and this is what we established already, but acceptance creates the atmosphere that allows for influence. Say it another way. If I focus on acceptance, if I focus on the durable embrace, then eventually I gain influence. Now here we think about, again, the example of Jesus. And you don't need chapter and verse on this. You, you know the pattern. You know, and don't take this the wrong way, but Jesus didn't come here to make a point. He didn't come to prove that he was right. Instead, he came to love and embrace unembraceable people. 
Jesus came to embrace the forbidden people, people like us. In other words, if Jesus had wanted to, um, he could have pointed out every way in which every person around him was flat out wrong. You're wrong in the way that you live. You're wrong in the way that you think. You're wrong in the way that you think about God. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. He could have just lined up everybody and just one by one listed all the ways in which they're all wrong. And if he had did that, he'd still be going today, right? But he didn't do that. What did he do instead? Well, the way I would say it for our purposes today, instead, what Jesus did is he created around himself an atmosphere of acceptance, an atmosphere of invitation, even for those who were, at least by his contemporary religious standards, those people who were forbidden, unacceptable people. That was Jesus' practice. And what, here's the key, what is the result of that approach? Well, the result is that we now, people, for generations now, half a world away, 2,000 years removed, we now go back and look again and again and again at the person of Christ, the pattern of Christ, and we say, look how right he was. You see that? So what Jesus practiced is the sacred embrace, created an atmosphere of acceptance, and the result is we go back and say, he was right, we were wrong, he was right all along. Why? What's going on there? It's because an atmosphere of acceptance produced the avenue for influence, that is, the influence of Christ in our lives. Interestingly, by the way, and this is instructive as well, there was only one group of people to whom Jesus didn't practice, you know, universal acceptance. There was only one group of people that Jesus challenged and scolded. And to say it in a particular way, it was a group of people who didn't practice acceptance of unacceptable people, the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day. They were rigidly intolerant of people who didn't measure up, at least according to their thinking. And Jesus had zero tolerance for their intolerance, right? So that would be the exception. And even the exception is instructive of the heart and mind of Christ. And so, and simply put, what Jesus teaches us about influence is that influence always flows through acceptance and embrace as the primary concern. And so here's the thing. You can make your case or you can build a bridge. You can make your point or you can make an impact on someone's life. You can win the argument or you can win their heart. It's like a fundamental choice that we have. You can try to convince them, or you can craft a bridge of relationship that has the potential to transform them. You can prove that you're right, or you can have relationship. It really comes down to that. And so you're thinking, how can I do that? How can I just, how can I just lay down what I know about the facts? How can I just set aside what I know, what I feel in my bones about right is right and wrong is wrong? How can I not make the case about what I know 
is right. When someone is genuinely wrong and I know they're wrong, I know precisely how it is, all the ways in which they're wrong, how can I not say that and make my case? How is it that we can be so acutely aware of what is and is not acceptable and still practice this kind of universal acceptance. I mean, for some, isn't, isn't that actually what maturity in the faith is? Like the more I mature in the faith, the more I learn about right and wrong. And so isn't it actually an expression of my spiritual maturity to demonstrate what I know about the wrongness of the wrongs in people's lives and the rightness of the right? And I mean, like, you know, this can be completely counterintuitively. And I get that. I understand it. And here's this big old honking sacred practice that we're talking about today accept people even unacceptable people how can I do that and I've already alluded to the answer to the question the answer is it's because that's what your heavenly father did for you that's the answer see just think about it how is it that your heavenly father gained influence in your soul how is it that your heavenly father has gained influence in your heart? See, here's what I know about you. If you are a Christian today, what I know about you is that your heavenly father has a tremendous amount of influence in your life. Um, you actually want to know what your heavenly father thinks and feels, and you actually want the guidance of your heavenly father in your life and here's the second thing that I know is that he didn't gain this level of influence in your life by arguing into a corner arguing you into a corner he didn't gain this level of influence in your life by convincing you of how wrong you are instead your heavenly father gained his current level of influence in your life by accepting you way before you were acceptable to him, right? I mean, that's how it works. And because of his embrace, long before you were embraceable, he won your heart. And because he won your heart through his inexplicable embrace, now, your Heavenly Father actually has influence in your life. This is the way it works. That's the process through which God has and is shaping you, transforming you, healing you, influencing you. That's the process. And so, thinking about a specific instance Maybe you really are right. Maybe your ideas really are better, righter, you know. Um, maybe your case is the right case to be made. I think here it's important to consider um, also that maybe you aren't right. So we have to consider that as well as a cause for tapping the brakes. But assuming you are genuinely right, um, still I want to say, and I'll just conclude with this even if you're right 
it still remains that you will never have the opportunity to positively influence the lives of those who you reject. You have zero influence in the life of someone you reject. So if you choose to make your point, make your case, draw the line, and just know that your influence stops right there. But on the other hand, if you lead with an atmosphere of acceptance, if you focus on the durable, no matter what, embrace, if you focus your energy on being a bridge builder, then I promise you, eventually, you will have the opportunity to influence. That's just the way it works. I knew a girl years ago who wanted to get married. And um, this girl had grown up in a Christian home. She wanted to marry a young man whom she had been dating for a while and with whom she had been cohabitating for some time. Her parents um, had graciously spoken to her about her decision to live with this guy, and she hadn't responded to their counsel. She had gone her own way anyway. But they continued to love her, their daughter, and her boyfriend, and continued to be in relationship with them, with the two of them. And then she approached her parents with the news of her engagement. Um, and with her request that her parents pay for the wedding. And um, these parents had a dilemma on their hands, and it wasn't about the money. And when I learned about this story is when these parents came to me to hash through this. Um, and I also knew the parents before our conversation about this. And so I got to walk through this decision with these parents at some length. I felt their struggle with their desire to love their daughter and be supportive and all that, and yet their genuine conflict with the life choices that she had made. And um, in addition to all else, when this couple had sought premarital counseling with a pastor, the couple had refused the pastor's counsel to them. And so these parents who had raised their daughter, you know, in a certain way by a certain set of values and all that, um, you know, it's all the same, all the things, you know, that she should have known better. She made a genuinely poor decision, all that. So these parents felt like they had a choice to make, and they discussed together and with me the idea of refusing to pay for the wedding, and it was not because of the money. It was, it was all the classic, like, thoughts that we think, well, if we pay for the wedding, isn't that, isn't that an act of condoning, right? That was, that was the issue, you know. Um, it would be inconsistent with our convictions about, you know, sexuality, about, you know, how, how things are, you know, by appropriately, how things should, by right, progress toward marriage. I mean, just all these feelings, you know. But in the end, after a arduous process of dialogue and prayer and conversation and soul searching, um, these parents ultimately landed 
on the side of acceptance, on the side of the durable embrace. We're going to be rugged bridge builders. That's ultimately where they landed. And so they did. They provided, paid for, and even together with their daughter did the wedding plan and you know, provided a beautiful wedding for their daughter. And I was there. And uh, at that reception, after the ceremony, when I saw that dad dancing with his daughter, the father-daughter dance at the reception, he was holding her close, and her head was on his chest, and they were both smiling and crying. Bathed in the love of God in that moment. Those parents could have cut her off. They could have. And if they had cut her off, they would have made their point. They would have made their case. And that would have been that. But instead, they chose to build a bridge. They chose to practice this otherworldly, if you want to call it mysterious, I'm fine with that too. This is a sacrament, I insist, of the durable, spirit-soaked embrace. They chose that practice and as a result not only did that dad have that have that moment with his daughter but what I know is that in that moment he won his daughter's heart and someday someday somewhere down the road that connection is going to result in a level of influence that that dad would have never had in the life of his daughter and chances are, it's going to be a moment and a level of influence that's exactly what her Heavenly Father needs for her dad to have in her heart. You feel me, right? So that brings the last, to the last point, and it's this, that acceptance, and here when I use that word, I'm talking about this bigger, sacred practice of the durable embrace. This gives God the kind of attention and fame that God actually wants. To reject people, even in the desire to be godly, actually dishonors God. Everybody, we got to get this straight. And it's right there. It's right there for you in the passage that we read in Romans 15. The Apostle Paul says it. And guided by the Spirit of God himself. Accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. What does he say? Then God will be glorified. Wow. Wow. Accept one another. Unacceptable though they may be. Then God is glorified. How wrong, how wrong we've gotten that so often. But that was the path. Going forward, we're on the side of the Spirit. And so, back to my story. 
I'm sitting in my office with this tearful single mom and her daughter. This mom has just gotten this disturbing news that her 17-year-old daughter is pregnant. She gives me the news. She becomes emotional. I don't know what she's going to say next. I don't know where she's going to go. But finally, she pulls herself together, and she starts to talk, and she looks at me straight in the eye, and she says, I know this isn't an ideal situation. And she said, but I love my daughter, and I'm going to be a grandmother. And she began to smile. And she said, we're going to surround Aaron with love, encouragement, and acceptance. And she said, so the reason I came here today And she said, I just want to know, are we going to have your support? She said, I just want to know, are you standing with us? And I looked at her and I said, you can count on me. And I'll do you one better. I promise you that I'll do my very best. To craft an atmosphere, a relational atmosphere for Aaron among her peers in this teen ministry who will practice and exemplify the same unconditional embrace of Aaron toward Aaron. I said, I'm pretty sure there probably will be some knuckleheads among us and I will do my best to coach them, counsel them, and root out that spirit as best I can. And so for the next nine months, as a teen minister, you remember this, Georgia, a long time ago? Aaron's baby was born nine months later, and uh, her name was Chloe. We called her baby Chloe. She's probably 20 years old now, <laughs> older than that. They, they taught her to call me Uncle Pastor Lowell. I remember, oh man, so many stories. I remember we were going to teen camp that summer. And by that time, Aaron was, you know, visibly pregnant. And we were driving out toward this remote camp. And and, um, there was a 20-something volunteer leader in our teen ministry in the car with me. And he said, "Um, have you thought about what might happen when we show up with Aaron in the group? And I said, no. Why? And he said, well, we have no guarantee that the leaders of this Christian camp are going to have the same view that we do. And I said, oh, you think somebody might have the guts to say something to me? And he said, they might. Religious people sometimes have gall. But, of course, nobody did. Nobody said anything. They practiced the same kind of love and embrace. I remember when I was in the hospital there soon after baby Chloe was born, and we were talking in the room, grandmother, mother, baby Chloe, and me. And Chloe's grandmother noticed every time I talked, baby Chloe would turn toward me and look to me. 
And she laughed and said, you know, Chloe's heard as many of your sermons as anybody from in the womb. <laughs> so just another example of, in this case, a grandmother. She could have made her point. She could have made her case. She could have demonstrated how right she was and how wrong her daughter was. And that would have been that. That would have been the end of her influence in her daughter's life. But this mom, grandmother, chose the path of the endurable, spirit-saturated embrace. So, this morning, I just want to submit that to you. And if it's not right now in your relational life that you have an opportunity to put this into practice, it will be soon, <laughs> right? Because we are inconsistent people. We disappoint one another. We let one another down. And, you know, obviously the hope is for this to become our mother tongue. You know, the hope is for us this to be the language that we speak. And yet, um, sometimes it's hard to learn a new language. The culture around us teaches us the language of, you know, drawing the line in the sand, cancel culture, all that. And then even sometimes, I'm going to say it, toxic religion teaches us that somehow, some way, it is an act of holiness to stigmatize, to reject, to whatever. Uh, and it's fake news. It's simply not true. What's reliable news is that healing and transformation, spiritual formation, the work that God has in mind for us, always flows through acceptance and embrace. Amen. Let's pray.